Hey Dan Talks listeners, welcome to another episode of Dan Talks. This week I'm talking to Chris Angel Murphy, who is an LGBTQ plus educator, consultant, and podcast host based in Denver, Colorado. They are a social worker and community organizer who provides quality LGBTQ plus training, speaking, consulting, and programming for ERGs, which I think means educational research groups, businesses, nonprofits, school districts, and beyond. I was so excited to talk to Chris Angel because I could tell they were so smart and um, have a lot of insight into gender, sexuality, and how those things are relevant for a workplace and just the world in general, how we can make more inclusive spaces where we can all thrive, uh, okay? Chris Angel's got it. So I was so excited to talk to them. I think you're going to love them. And without further ado, here is Chris Angel. Chris Angel, fair to say that you provide uh, trainings to organizations to make them better places for LGBTQ plus people and people in general. Yes. Um, the ongoing joke with my friends is that I'm doing like a million things, but yes, that's one of the the larger projects I have. What do you find is the thing people need to work the most on in organizations? There's a lot of talk right now about bringing your full self, your true self, authentic self, whatever jargon you want to use. And I think it's great, except not everyone wants to bring their full self to work. And part of even why I got into this work, and I promise I'll answer your question, is because every place I've worked at, I've had to carve out a space for myself. Even if it was an LGBTQ plus organization that we're familiar with, there was work I had to do. And it's it's exhausting to do that free emotional labor. So I'd say for any organization talking the talk that they better actually do the work to be in alignment with what they're saying they're setting out to achieve. So if they want employees to be able to bring their full selves, whether that's, you know, sharing pronouns, things like that, make it a space that people want to do that. But it's a lot of work. And I think a lot of places feel like, oh, well, we just had Pride Month. So we checked that box. We're good for now. But I'm still queer, trans and non-binary the rest of the year. I don't just like put away my, you know, pride apparel and and all of that in the closet and go, okay, well, I can't be queer, trans and non-binary anymore. So I I think that the disconnect of, oh, but we do such great work and all that. So yeah, any, anyone can just come here, but that's, that's not true because it's ongoing threads and the culture is going to change and you can't just do like one training a a year and call it good. And And that's just like for one, like intersection, right? Right. What does being queer, non-binary, or trans in a professional setting, like, explain the relevance of those identities to a professional workplace? What I want to see is the diversity going beyond the front lines. And what I mean by that are the people who maybe are answering the phone calls or providing the services The further you go up, you tend to see people who are white, straight, cis men, usually thin, right? Because there's fat phobia, there's all this stuff coming into play. And you've caught me at a very interesting time because as much as I want to say that queer doesn't have a look, it kind of does. There is like an aesthetic to it. I just got into this conversation with some friends yesterday because my ADHD brain goes all over the place. So I'll be like, Hey, so morning musings, how do you feel about this thing? My friends have come to expect this from me, but I was talking about how for me, 
I mean, I'm still paying off student loans, et cetera. I know you went to graduate school. I went some time ago. I like, again, I'm still paying that off. But when I think about the queer aesthetic, there are things I would love to do to express like my gender differently, like maybe have like super bright pastel pink hair or something, but there's like the financial burden of it. And then when you talk about being professional, especially coming from social work, which is some of my background, that wouldn't be professional necessarily. Not all places are super lax on things like that. Again, it comes back to, we want you to bring your full selves, but only if it's within this narrow definition. So yeah, I think about how some of the queer aesthetic tends to be piercings, tattoos, different color hair, certain color, you know, or certain styles of of hair and things like that. And I, I just don't think that's accessible to everyone, especially in a place of work, depending again on how loose or um, strict their policies are. So what that even looks like for me, I'm constantly exploring because again, it just doesn't always feel like something that's accessible. And then because of that, there's this other piece of not always feeling queer enough or trans enough or non-binary enough. Cause another arc we have going in media broadly is that non-binary people specifically are white, they're thin, they're androgynous and you're stuck in that box, but that's not true. That's the whole point of the identity is that you get to expand that you get to be so much more than that. But those are the arcs we keep seeing. And you mentioned your ADHD. Can you talk a little bit more about neurodivergence and how it sort of intersects with queer identity and sort of the particularity of that? Because that also is something that doesn't really get talked about in terms of like DEI work or any of that sort of, you know, conversation around making spaces more LGBTQ plus friendly. Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) it's embarrassing to say but I'm happy this happened. I was one of those people who was like, I'm not going to open TikTok. I am not going to get on there. No, all these privacy concerns, et cetera. I ended up on there. So about November of the end of 2021, I had to think about what year it is, (laughs) but at the end of November, 2021, I ended up on there. And would you know, that TikTok diagnosed me very quickly with ADHD and then quickly tumbled me into the combo of autism as well. And I was like, why am I seeing myself in this? This is funny. But then there was a lot of that. And I was like, oh, well, and then it explained a lot. And I feel like that's what's interesting about some of these identities is that if it's not taught about in school, for example, if we're not being exposed to those authentic storylines, when I see shows like Atypical, I don't see myself in that main character. So I would have never been like, oh, I'm autistic because that's just not how I saw it for myself. But because of learning about things like masking, and I don't mean the pandemic masking, but like masking, code switching, hiding who I am. Once I started looking back in my life across the timeline, I'm like, oh, yeah, all of these intersections. So like my gender expression, my sexuality, all of this constantly pushed against the quote unquote norm. So I can remember as early as second grade, we this is a story I tell to my my friends a lot, but. I remember, yeah, as early as second grade, my teacher wanted us to have a class garden. Cool. Happy to do that. One of the first steps, though, was that we had all these weeds. So we all needed to get there and get in there and and pull all these weeds. Right. And I did. I did do that, except, you know, we had these disposable cameras back then. And so when the photos came back, 
you know, she was showing it to the class and I think she, the intention was to be able to give all of us like a photo of ourselves doing this. And so I was in like every photo and she was so pissed because I was just like, yeah, this pink shirted blur just in every photo. And she was just like scolding me in front of the whole class. And I don't know what I did wrong. Cause she was like, you, you need to sit in a spot and just pull the weeds right there. And I'm like, I don't, you didn't say that. All you said was pull the weeds. And I did. It's just, I pulled them over here. I pulled them over there. I went over there and pulled some. I don't know why. That's just how I wanted to do it. Like I needed to move more. Like it was, that was just more appealing. To, so like, I still did it. She just didn't like how I did it. And that's when the masking started. And that's when I started learning every time I hit that bump. And there's so much to ADHD and, and autism. And, but all of those times, it was another thing I learned to hide about myself, you know, like being a tomboy. That was something that I really struggled with because, you know, when I was in elementary school, it was praised, but then by middle school, it's like, oh, that's not cute anymore. Why are you still doing that? You know, we thought this was a phase you really, you know, you need to be more ladylike. And it's like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, like present day, I can tell you, I have failed girlhood. I have failed at womanhood. It never came naturally to me. I'm, and I'm happy about that because like a whole other thread we could go down because again, ADHD rabbit holes is just even the concept of what, what does that mean? Like, what is womanhood? What is girlhood? And all, all I know is I failed at it, but I, I think that it's not even just me as someone assigned female at birth. I think there's a lot of women and girls who feel that way too, because it's such a fine line to walk that like, no matter what, even if you succeed, you fail. Whereas I feel like with men, and that's a lot of the privilege I benefit from given how people perceive me these days. Um, and uh, it feels like you get a part participation trophy just for showing up. So it's, it's a, they're very different worlds to live in. But all that to say, coming back to your original question, I, I can only say so much about neurodivergence, but what I'm learning is there is a huge overlap between neurodivergence and the queer and trans communities, because now I'm finding a lot of my friends are, as I'm sharing my story more and what that looks like for me on the day to day, they're seeing their, their selves in my story too. And then they're questioning and now they're getting diagnosed. So it's like, I'm, it's, it reminds me of like in middle school, some of us were starting to figure out we were like queer or trans or something. And then it's just like, you know, we just naturally gravitated toward each other without realizing it. I'm finding the same thing with the neurodivergence, all of my, for the most part, all of my closest friends, people that I feel most at home with are usually at at least one of those intersections. But where I feel comfortable the most is when people are both neurodivergent and part of the broader LGBTQ plus community. Do you think it's getting better for kids now or is that just something that we think? I remember when the It Gets Better campaign came out and I was livid. I wasn't really happy about it. I know that it was very well-intentioned. I know I they still exist. I joke about it a exist. lot. I, I talk about the It Gets Worse project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, there's no accountability. There's just these broad sweeping statements. And I know so many people who participated in that and their videos still exist on YouTube. I, I think that's great. And there's an accountability piece of number one, the work we have to do to make it that way, as well as broader society, because we can't just say, well, just hang in there, kid, because someday, you know, everything will be great and you'll get to make all these decisions and live on your own and have all these rights and stuff, especially as we're seeing them getting taken away right now. Right. And so I'm like, it doesn't get better. And you can't promise that you can't possibly promise that because 
again, intersectionality and everyone's going to have a different experience. And that also doesn't speak to how not everyone has the same access to support or resources broadly. So those are some of my bigger issues. So I think they do good work. It's just that I think that messaging is dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, well, cause all we can, the message is really like you, you will get older or more so like we hope you will get older and yeah. then more so like we hope you don't kill yourself because you're in such deep despair right now. But here's the problem then, Dan, is that a lot of my friends, especially uh, those of us in the trans community, especially if we're outside of the binary of, of man and woman, we're constantly in conversation about how, number one, we never expected to live this long. And number two, maybe we even feel like we're living on borrowed time. And number three, we can't even like foresee what our future should look like. We don't even know what to work toward because in some ways this feels new again, not the, not the concepts, right. I mean, the naming can be new, right. We didn't always have non-binary as a term. So we're getting more terminology that can help to describe our experiences. And we don't always get to see a lot of elder trans folks, non-binary folks. So sometimes it just gets hard to even see what what is even attainable? What could we strive for? What could that look like if we're rejecting manhood and womanhood and there's all these other genders? But like, again, what does that look like? Do we call it theyhood? I, I keep joking about that. Um, like, yeah. So what what does that look like? And so I think there's beauty in the freedom of getting to explore that. But then also it can feel overwhelming if we don't feel like we have examples to look toward. That's That's like, that's the hell I'm stuck in at least. It's so profound to think that, um, because I I did expect to live this long. I didn't really think about being gay until I was 20 plus, now I'm 30. But I sort of as a white guy, I thought, oh yeah, I'll like get old. You know, I'll get married. Kids questionable, but I'll have a job. I'll get old. And to think that um, to reach, you know, even your 20s, late 20s, 30s was like not something you even foresaw is um i mean how, how does it feel to be living them i mean i'm gonna be 35 this year and part of me is grateful and i'm really proud of a lot of the things that i've been able to accomplish and i'm also just like distraught with what's currently happening and I know, especially because there are a lot of older LGBTQ plus folks in my life, that this is more like a pendulum, things, you know, shift back and forth. And I know in my heart of hearts that we are going to win and like the right things will be in place. It's just really hard to see that right now. And even just in my lifetime, there's so much I've seen, you know, back when I lived in California, we were dealing with no and prop eight. I don't know that in my lifehood I ever anticipated marriage equality would be legalized. And now that's potentially on the chopping block again. And so I think there's a lot of grieving the same way that like I had my family and I lost them. And then I had them again, only to lose them again um, to death because they both passed my, you know, nuclear family. A lot of them passed away due to health concerns. And so like that kind of loss and everything is just hard to carry around. And the grieving, grieving process is just really bumpy anyway, but having all these like extra components added to it, it's just a lot to deal with. And the best way to get support I've found is just within the community. 
And that's why we're in these conversations, not always publicly, but we're having these conversations privately of again, like maybe I'll make it to 40, you know? And I, I say that because I have experienced hate crimes and things like that before. There are times I was able to walk away from situations where I'm like, how am I still alive and unharmed physically at least? But yeah, it's just, again, it's it's just hard to to think about that. And I think a lot of us, that are in this intersection, especially either the transness again or non-binariness and not, you know, anticipating we'd live this long. A lot of us also struggled with suicide ideation over the years. There may have been attempts or, or things like that even. So I think there's a lot there. I think there's a lot to explore. Again, I just, I know for me personally, the best healing and just feeling connected to other people and, and feeling comfortably vulnerable has been with other people at those same intersections. You've posted before about going to therapists, like many different therapists, and some of them being like harmful, basically, and having bad practices and causing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the complexity of fine? I mean, it's sort of hard to find a good therapist in general. I would imagine exceptionally hard to find a good therapist who would understand what sorts of trauma trans and non-binary queer people are coming from? Yes. A lot of my training, especially when it comes to the helping professionals, addresses things like don't treat your client or your patient, depending on the, you know, setting you're in, don't treat them like your educational token. You know, it's a huge difference to say, oh, I'm not familiar with non-binary. What is that? That's Google, right? Which is scary, which is why I tell people to always go to PFLAG National's website first, because they have a glossary there that has a lot of nuance for a lot of these uh, terms. Instead, there's a huge difference in asking someone, what does that mean to you? That's a bid to connect. That's like a relationship opener. And so that's something I'm more happy to answer. But a lot of these folks are well-intentioned. They're usually white women. And when you're going through these kinds of programs, they don't always set you up for success. So even in my social work programs, you know, I got my bachelor's and my master's in social work. Although I was more community organization focused, you know, I still had to learn a lot of the one-on-one -on -one dynamics and like looking across the lifespan and, and, you know, learn all these different theories and everything. But there are so many different intersections. There are so many different marginalized or historically underrepresented communities or silenced communities that it's hard to have enough time to learn about all of them and hold space for all of them. And I, I don't think that's the answer. I think, I think we should be exposed to them, but I do think it's important for us to specialize because when I go to a therapist's you know, profile on you know, psychology today or look at their website and they're like, I will meet you where you're at. And here's like 50 million different things I can help you with. I'm like, that's not possible. It's not possible. You can hold space for all of those things. And I know we're complex humans. Multiple things can come up in sessions, but they also, unless maybe they can get some continuing education units or something, the motivation isn't always there to pursue. How do I really do justice to this community? And some people will just stumble awkwardly into it. So maybe they're not even part of the LGBTQ plus community, but they see maybe if they work in a rural area, for example, and there isn't like an LGBT center or, or something like that 
they'll specialize in that because, you know, that's a form of harm reduction. It's like, I'm not from this community, but I'm going to try to hold space for you. And, you know, yeah, there's a learning curve there, but I've just been disappointed because I keep getting therapists who will claim they have experience, but then they'll misgender me. They don't know how to correct themselves. Like they're asking me all these bizarre questions, or even when I send them resources, I'm thinking of one I had last year. I even sent her resources for her to go and learn more specifically about supporting non-binary people. And she also managed to, you know, misgender that person too. And so it's just like, (laughs) yeah, your face is everything right now. It just, you know, it, I, I just, I want people to be honest with themselves about the space they're actually able to hold for people because you're not going to be a safe person for everybody. I think people, um, cis people have a certain anxiety about transness or and about trans people. And I think um, maybe there's an interesting intersection with a therapist who thinks that they're there to help and facilitate healing. And so they sort of have a position of importance. I mean, cis people tend to have you know, feelings of importance anyway, but, um, <laughs> yeah. um, how do you think, um, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any sort of trans responsibility to make people feel comfortable. I think that's the reason why, um, so much harm has been done is that that burden has been put on trans people. Um, do you feel the same way that it's like cis people, if they feel anxious about pronouns or, not knowing someone's gender or not knowing how someone identifies that they need to like figure out how to get over it. And and that it's not really that scary or hard. Yes. So I've always wanted to start a podcast and I never knew what I wanted to talk about. Cause again, ADHD, like even in this conversation, (laughs) you've seen me jumping around several times. And this is even with me with the medication in me today. However, that said, I finally landed on allyship as a verb and I've been interviewing people from the LGBTQ plus community because the other part is that we can't do copy paste solutions. So as you listen to the people I'm interviewing, they want different things or there's a slant, a different slant they'll take, even if it's like the same overall message of like, do the work. Cause I I say that because Katrina was on my podcast and I know you just had a interview with them recently. And so there's, there's that piece. So that's why instead of the golden rule of, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated, I've adopted the platinum rule of treat others the way they want to be treated. And that comes from someone who I forget the name off the top of my head right now, but coined it in the seventies. And I'm like, that makes so much more sense. Mm -hmm. So that's like another piece of it. That means we actually have to get to know someone and put forth effort in getting to know how we can best honor them. And usually it's things that take maybe like two extra seconds, but like what you're talking about, I mean, even just looking at, again, the helping professions, whether it's counselors, therapists, et cetera, part of the problem too is, I mean, ideally we'd be able to see people who reflect us. However, it's not, these aren't always easy fields to get in because number one, they're, you're overworked and underpaid typically. And then there's the piece of like, I've, I had this huge realization, especially as Black Lives Matter started ramping up again, in that as a helping professional, I am upholding the same systems 
that are harming the communities I wish to support. And so what I mean by that is when we'll have to force someone to have a welfare check, which is usually done by police because we don't always have a lot of social workers or that's not like the first thought. So places like Denver, Colorado, where I live now, are being more forward with that and, you know, are developing those kinds of programs. But you know, to hold someone either against their will or, you know, assume that I know better than them. There's all these different complex issues. So when I have to be a mandated reporter in certain roles, that doesn't feel good to me because sometimes I know, even though I'm required by law to do this, I know that's not the move. I know that's not the move to do because there's some sort of complexity with the cultural values or, or, or something that's more important here. So if like, for example, if, if the whole point of foster care was saying, well, you know, if parents leave a mark on a child, that's abuse. But what if it's cupping that leaves a mark, you know, so there's all these other considerations. And so that that's why, like, I'm also in this uh, ethical quandary, if you will, of as a social worker am I perpetuating more harm? Because again, I'm sending out against people's will sometimes, and I'm not in those kinds of roles right now, but I have, I've had to make those calls before and it, it doesn't feel good. And so like, what, what do I do then? And I think, you know, naively, I got into this field thinking, I'm going to learn how to like empower myself, empower others, fight the system from within, et cetera. And then you learn, it's just like this long grueling battle and it wears you down. And then you just got to figure out what are the little ripples that you can create in your corner of the universe? Cause it's just, it's overwhelming and there's just so much more to it. You talked about in grad school studying lifespans and theories. Was there any sort of theory about trans life? Like, like the lifespan of a trans person or a gender non-conforming person? <laughs> I've, I've been on my own midterms. I've been on my own finals because <laughs> I've been almost everything that could have happened to me has happened to me in my classes or my courses. So my speaking career started back in high school because in 11th grade, I was in an English class. The topic of gay authors came up and someone in the class from the back, you know, shouted, oh, being gay is a choice. And I was just this shy, awkward, Chris Angel baby, you know, and I was barely coming to terms with my own identity at that time and getting the language for it. But that was the first time I spoke out. Yeah, just getting my wings. If you want to go with the whole angel imagery and all that, why not? Let's just lean into it hard. But yeah, so like I was just figuring that out for myself, but I knew enough to say it's like not a choice because at that point there was already so much pushback, like being a tomboy, et cetera, that like I'd already had that lived experience. I'm like, this is awful. Why would I choose this? Like, it's just whether or not I'm choosing to be authentic, but that even can be a privilege because I can't always, again, going back to the beginning of the conversation, bring my full self everywhere. Sometimes I have to compartmentalize or code switch. And so when I'm, I'm thinking about that, even my human sexuality courses, you know, they'd be like, oh, okay, men, what do you like in women? Women, what do you like in men? And I'm like, what? Uh, you're, you're ignoring a lot of people here. Plus, like, if we were going to continue with this example, that would also be like forcing people out potentially. So like, 
I, you need to rethink this exercise because there's probably a better way of getting to where you're trying to take us. I've been in um, courses where they've split us by gender. And I was like, well, where the hell do you want me to go? My own little island? Like, I, you know, and again, I wasn't ready at that time necessarily to disclose to people. So it just, I was constantly put in these weird situations. Or even again, in my social work classes, we barely talked about it. Maybe it was like a, an extra reading we had or something, but it rarely came up. And if it did, it's because I brought it up probably. And then I was tokenized, but I put myself in that position willingly because I knew that if I didn't speak up, who else would? And that's like, you know, a huge minority tax of deciding to do that. And I knew I had enough privilege to protect me so that I could do that. But then I also wondered as a people pleaser, trying not to be a people pleaser anymore though, but I wondered, are people getting tired of me talking about this? But again, if I don't talk about it at all, it's just, it's not coming up. So yeah, I, I think a lot of places can do better about that. But again, it comes back to, we should be introduced to a lot of these different kinds of communities and we should also make sure that we are specializing though, because I don't think we can just provide general care to just anyone who walks through doors. Um, have you been lucky in love? Lucky in love? Ooh, let me think about that. <laughs> I am going to choose my words carefully. <laughs> I... Okay, so the first time I felt unconditional love, like genuine unconditional love, was when I adopted my senior cats. And that was back in when I finally had my own apartment. I was, you know, out of graduate school. It was early 2015. And I experienced that through them because it's just not something that my dad and my grandma, who I grew up with, could provide. My mom, who was in and out of the picture, could provide. I eventually went no contact with her and there's been no looking back. I feel great about that decision. But that's just not something I experienced from like my quote unquote blood family, right, which is supposed to be everything. So I was taught in my relationships because of a lot of the trauma that I faced with my family it's like played out in my romantic relationships. So I think about my first big, big relationship. Um, uh, We were on and off for four years. It took five years to finally be done with that person. And there was a lot of damage done. But the reason I stayed so long is because, again, as a trans person and being non-binary and everything, I thought that I wasn't going to be lucky in love and that if I could get even any crumbs that I should be grateful for it because especially being in Los Angeles, it's just, I don't think it's easy to date in Los Angeles because every profile I was seeing was like, you need to be this tall. Your teeth need to be perfect. You need to come from a good family. I was like, well, I'm just not doing well here. (laughs) So I lowered my standards a lot and accepted again, the love I thought I deserved. And now I'm in a different place with that. But again, there's still a lot to resolve there. So I think The best love I found again was with my cats because I just think a lot of us in the community can find a lot of healing and and love from pets. And also, again, the folks at the neurodivergent and LGBTQ plus intersection, that's like what feels most home to me now. And so those have been the relationships I've been seeking out. And I, I say that not that I'm like, well, anyone else is not there or anywhere near there. Goodbye. Good day. You know, it's not like that, but those are the people I hold closest because 
even if I am in a situation where I feel like I have to mask or code switch or something, it feels more natural doing it with them because it's more close to what I would do naturally, if that makes any sense. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I don't know, will I be in a healthier romantic relationship at some point in my life? I hope so, but I'm also still exploring Am I monogamous? Am I non-monogamous? What would that look like? What would my ideal scenario be? But right now I'm not even dating because I'm like, I got a lot to figure out now that I've learned by way of TikTok <laughs> that, you know, there's more communities that I'm, I'm tapped into than I previously thought. Well, Chris Angel, um, thank you for being an angel and for coming on. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Um, also the Beyonce song, you're no angel either, but you're... No, hey, but it doesn't make sense because you are an angel. Um, thank you for coming on. I'm going to link your uh, Instagram in the episode description. Anything else that you would like people to follow? Ally Shape as a verb. Yeah. Um, if you want to listen to my podcast, the second season is going to be dropping on August 2nd and will be coming out every other Tuesday. But I also have to say, I've never been serenaded in an interview before. So Dan, thank you for that. I mean, that alone was just like absolutely worth this experience. So, so thank you. And thank you for your, your questions and your time. You you're welcome. You're welcome for it all.